Let's read God's word, Matthew 16, 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000, or how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is God's word. Amen. Have a seat. Whoa, I almost broke something. And that was almost Liz's guitar, which she probably would have killed me. You're giggling right now, Liz, but I know you had a little bit of a heart attack. Um. Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and I get the joy of preaching a lot. We are going straight through Matthew, and this is typical for churches to do kind of like Christmassy sermon series. No, we don't do that. We just figure God's big enough to speak to us uh, throughout every scripture at every time. And so our theme for every single Sunday is Jesus. There you go. That's what our theme is. Um, so we're in Matthew, and... Uh, Last Wednesday, so I'm going to start out by grossing you out a little bit, so just prepare yourself. But last Wednesday, uh, we have a, no, actually it might have been two Wednesdays ago. Two Wednesdays ago, we have a men's Bible study that I lead uh, weekly. Men, you should be there, but it's not meeting next week. But after that, you should be there. So we have this weekly Bible study, and it was at that time that I ended my 20-year puke streak. Hadn't puked for 20 years. Okay, and in one moment, 20 years down the toilet, literally, okay, in the middle of Bible study, and I don't get sick, you got to understand, I'm like Wolverine, right, don't get sick, don't, don't ever like, if I, I get cut, it like heals instantly, I'm just not, if I'm sick, something's seriously wrong, okay, so this happened and it disturbed me, but I thought, well, it's just an anomaly. I get like getting struck by lightning. I threw up. Okay, move forward. I actually finished teaching the Bible study. It was awesome, right? It's like Michael Jordan, game seven of whatever finals that was, comes out like, Bleh! all right, let's go. Second Timothy. It was rad. But all that to say, I started. That wasn't the end of it. And what I mean was, I I had some like violent fetal position, digestive issues for like like a couple days. And I'm like, what is going on? This doesn't happen to me. This doesn't happen. I was thinking ulcer. I'm like, what is going on? So then 
I, I knew it wasn't like food poisoning because I've had that once before, 20 years ago. Uh, so, um, and I knew it wasn't like um, a virus because I just know when I'm sick and it's rare and it wasn't sick. But something, so I started like mapping out what I've been eating just in case. Like, what am I eating? And, and so I'd have these pains and it'd come and go. I'm like, what is this? And there was one consistent element in it. And I didn't, I'm not making this up. This is like just the way God works in terms of what we're preaching. The one consistent element was bread. And so I thought, oh no. Had God chosen to curse me after years of unrelenting mockery of all things organic, whole grain, and unmodified? Right? I still think that's just an economic ploy. But aside, like, was this it? God's going, here you go, son. I mean, did, did my stomach feel like, and this is what I think best describes it, a balloon full of glass twisted knots because of an allergic reaction to gluten? Could that be it? I was freaking out. The G word, right? The G word. People, we hear the G word gluten all the time now, and we haven't heard it um, up until about a decade ago. So I looked up, to, I, I did a lot of research. I'm like, what is wrong with me, right? It's either like stomach cancer or bad burritos or something in between. And so 99% of us, I think, probably 10 years ago never heard of this word. And in truth, uh, mankind has been eating wheat, which is where this kind of originates a little bit. Uh, with gluten in it for thousands of years. In the last 10 years, it's like the new thing. I can't stop talking about it. And it's it's one of, I just kind of looked up some facts, one of the most heavily consumed proteins on Earth. When And it happens, it kind of is created when these two molecules come together when typically in bread making. And if you don't know, some of you are, have um, you know, celiac disease or, or a gluten intolerance, and so you understand this. And really... When, when bakers knead dough, this, this bond that these two molecules you know, create creates gluten, and, and it provides kind of that elastic membrane. It's what gives bread kind of its chewy texture. Um, and it's what, like, it's, it's what permits like, pizza dough to be flipped up and not like, just disintegrate and fall apart, right? It stays kind of sticky together. So that's, that's gluten. So it's essentially this thing you can't see. Right, it's this... It's this it's this thing you can't see, and gluten really a bond with someone else. It's a catalyst that, that causes things to grow, because it's the stuff that makes, you know, uh, rise in dough. Like what, that's what a, a, it rises because of that existence of, of what leaven or, or gluten with this other molecule. But essentially, it is something that's making an increasing number of people sick, and you can't see it. Like one in 133 people. So, like, why am I talking about all this uh, puke streaks, pizza, and protein? So... Let me, let me just get to it. God liked bread. Right? He really likes bread. And like overtly so. If you, if you go into the Bible, from beginning to end, bread plays actually an incredibly important role throughout biblical history. In Scripture, bread is used to um, heavenly bread, miraculously feed the Israelites who had fled from Egypt or in the wilderness. Uh, bread was used in consecrating priests. Bread was used to represent God's presence in the temple. Bread was used as a sacrifice and an offering of thanksgiving. Bread was used to memorialize redemption. Bread was used by Jesus to identify Himself as the giver of life. And bread was even used by Jesus to symbolize the new covenant and how it was accomplished. 
So bread is like throughout the Bible. And over the last two chapters, we've seen Jesus perform two miracles where He fed thousands of people bread. Where He basically gave them physical nourishment pointing towards a spiritual nourishment yet to come. And then, what happens as we read in Matthew 16 is they're following these big miracles about bread. Two representatives come. And these representatives are from the largest religious factions in Israel at this time. A group called the Pharisees and a group called the Sadducees. And it says that they're there to test Him. And it's really more of a trial. They're trying to basically prove that He is not who He says He is. Prove that He is not this man from God, but maybe just a magician. And the proof that He has already offered, which most likely they saw or at least heard about these two miracles that occurred. They've heard about other things. We talked about all the things that occurred prior to the feast of the bread or the miracles of the bread. He had healing of the lame and the blind. And so what Jesus is doing is not like unknown. Everyone knows what's going on and these guys are feeling threatened or maybe a little curious. And they come out to prove that basically He can't be who He says He is. And the proof that they have seen so far or heard of is unsatisfying. They say they want other signs. And what they really want to happen, let's just be clear, what they want to happen is to come up and go, alright, are you who you say you are? And they want a shaft of light to come down and say, this is the Messiah, listen to Him. Mind you, it's already happened at the baptism. It will happen again in a couple weeks when we read the Transfiguration. But that's what they want. And I think like sometimes we go, oh, these, these guys don't, you know, they're so evil, whatever. How many times, have you ever done this where you're like, God, I wish you just would tell me, make that star move and I'll know that it's true. Or make a hand right on the wall, like give me a sign, right? When he's giving you sign after sign after sign after sign after sign, you and I both know what we do. Come on, make that light bulb go out, Right? Make that guy turn left, though his signal is right right now. Just show me God. And so they're coming to him like, yeah, I know you've given a bunch of signs, healed the blind, I mean, that's pretty impressive, the lame and what other thing, fed thousands of people with a couple of fish, but we want a sign that we want. Go a step further for us. And so what you have is, these guys are the most religiously trained guys in Israel. And despite all of their religious training. Despite all of their study, they have lost or they are blind to the spiritual meaning of Jesus' signs. They've seen the signs. It's not that they're saying they didn't happen. They have different explanations for them. And despite all their knowledge of Scripture, right? these guys know their Bibles. Don't for a second think that these guys are just like, you know, uh, philosophical religious dudes. Like, they know their Bibles. They study them. They commit themselves to their Bibles. But despite all the Bible knowledge they have, they're clueless to Jesus' identity. All of their religion and all of their love for Scripture has produced one thing. Pride. A tremendous amount of it. So much so, unlike the Canaanite woman who came before the king with zero education, Zero Bible knowledge and says, Lord, have mercy, Son of David. You have the guys who know it all, studied it all, come and say, give us a sign. 
No, Lord. No, have mercy. Pony up, Jesus. Let's see what you got. They demand a sign. They don't ask for proof. They demand proof. And I love Jesus' response. I love His response. And I think a lot of things, particularly how the Gospel or how the disciples respond later, but Jesus as well, like if you were going to make up a story about Jesus, like if this is just all a bunch of bunk and you were going to make stuff up, I would drop some of this out. Because it doesn't make Jesus look very good and it makes the disciples look horrible and they're the ones that recorded it, right? So for me, it just legitimizes it all because they look like normal guys and Jesus looks like a real man, stud, teacher, guy that deals with it, not in a way that you think church guys should. What does he tell them? So he gives a sign. And what he says, he's like, you guys are really awesome weathermen and you are really horrible teachers. Pretty much what he tells them. You know, red sky at night, sailor's delight, right? Yeah, you guys can tell what's going to rain and when it's going to storm. Clearly it wasn't the Northwest where no one can tell the weather, right? It's, it's, I don't trust the weather. Anyway, sorry, that's a side, whole side soapbox I could go, on to, go into, but I won't. Because you guys are horrible teachers. And then he goes this. He rebukes them. First thing, he rebukes them for their spiritual blindness, basically saying, you're responsible. You should know better. You should know. Then he goes further and he condemns them as what? Adulterers. You should know better and you are as sinful as a lustful idolater. And then what does he do? He leaves them. He just walks away. I love it! I mean, just... I don't, I don't got time for this. You should know better. You're in sin, and now you're alone and lost. See you later. And he leaves. Doesn't give them a sign. Doesn't kowtow to their demands. He walks away. But then he begins to talk to his disciples, which is where we get more insight as to what's going on. So after leaving... And the, the chronology is a little odd in here, and so I won't spend time dealing with that, but it gets a little confusing. But he leaves, and whether he's in the boat or not in the boat, I'm not really sure, but he warns his disciples, right? Just watch out for the gluten or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I, I love it. I just love This is so good. The Bible is so rad, okay? Disciples just are doofuses. They're just doofuses. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like a doofus. Because sometimes when you read stuff in the Bible, you're like, what? Right? So the disciples are struggling just as much as the Pharisees and the Sadducees are in understanding what Jesus is talking about. Now, I don't know what happened to the seven baskets of leftovers they had, right? It's like they just left it on the shore or somewhere because they don't have any bread. Did they eat it all? Like, seriously, seven baskets full of leftovers? Peter's back there snacking, like, it's all gone. They got no bread, and Jesus says this statement, and they're confused. They're like, hey, John, we don't got any bread. What are you talking about? Right? Hey, be careful of the gluten, guys. We don't got any bread, Jesus. What are you talking about? And the thing about the disciples is no different than I think many of us today, at least I'll include myself, that they have their eyes and their hearts 
most of the time fixed on the flesh. They're usually thinking about the physical. They're usually thinking about the flesh. They're not really considering the spiritual ramifications of things. Like, how often do you forget that there's a spiritual aspect to life? That not everything is earthly, not everything is temporal, that this is not really your home. That we are ambassadors here in a foreign land on our way to Jesus. And there's a spiritual element. There's a war going on, right? What does Paul say? Our battle's not against flesh and blood. How often do you forget that? The disciples are thinking just about bread. They've, and this is like right after miracles. Oh, I don't got any bread, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Is he nuts? These guys, right, ministered with Jesus side by side for three years. This is what gives me so much comfort as a disciple of Christ. If the guys who walked next to Jesus for three years were still clueless at times, okay, I'm all right. If I don't got it all figured out. If I make mistakes, if I misunderstand, if I screw up, if I sin, okay. These guys, man, they didn't have an excuse, seemingly. They had Jesus like one-on-one. They had Jesus doing, they were doing miracles with Jesus. Right? Who knows what's happening? Like, here you go, here's the bread. And we're like, what's going on? I don't know, but this is pretty rad. And they still miss the boat sometimes. I think, like the disciples, we're apt to maybe dismiss spiritual truth and maybe even the words or whisperings of Jesus when they don't sound spiritual, right? And that's what causes, I think, a lot of people to get really religious in their language. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Sometimes you experience that during prayer with people where they're like trying to impress, who knows? But they just like they don't talk like that, and suddenly they become like, you know, a thesaurus as they start praying, and it's like blah 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 blah. And they're like, where does that come from? I guess that could be the Spirit, but like it seems like you're putting on something here. I'm not saying everyone does that, and if you're a great prayer person, then, then don't, don't think I'm criticizing you, but sometimes we dismiss the stuff that doesn't sound spiritual. Because Jesus' words don't sound spiritual, right? Beware of the leaven. Okay. I think some of the most powerful messages come through some of the most ordinary, everyday things. And maybe we should be discerning more spiritually rather than trying to speak so spiritually. And begin to look maybe at life through a spiritual lens and say, hmm, maybe there's something else going on here. Because that's pretty much what Jesus is trying to, to do. See, Matthew makes a point. He says it. He's like, Jesus knows they don't have bread. Like, he says that. He's aware of their lack of breadness. And, and Matthew wants to make that point like, Jesus knows what's going on. It just kind of makes the disciples look a little much more thick in terms of their heads. And he tells them, like, your faith is really small. And he challenges their lack of discernment by reminding, he's like, do you guys not remember the two miracles that you just participated in? And we talked about this before, that as disciples we often have amnesia about what God has done. And we do well to remember constantly and speak about constantly the, the things that God has done. And this is why we, for example, take communion every Sunday to remind ourselves of the Gospel in a very tangible and real way. But Jesus doesn't want His disciples just to remember the facts. Oh yeah, remember the miracle? 
He wants them to remember the nature of the miracle, the kind of miracle it was for both of these miracles. See, the feedings of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 prove that God does not work according to realistic calculations or even reasonable odds. Less is more. Small is bigger. Weakness is power, right? That's evaluating things through a spiritual lens when you begin to look. And in most simplest of terms, things are not always as they seem. That there's always more going on with Christ. That the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000 was not about feeding. There was something else going on and they just like, boo, missed it. They may have gotten to the place of like, well, Jesus is really powerful. He can really do a miracle. But they've missed the whole spirituality of what Jesus was pointing to, the great feast that will happen, the true feeding that needs to take place. Isn't that like what the Christmas story is all about? And sometimes we get stuck on the stable and the manger and the shepherds. And Grant, we're going to have an awesome play. It's going to be rad. I'm just hoping for like, Something to break, kid to cry. It's going to be old-fashioned Charlie Brown disaster. I'm going to love it. It's going to be beautiful and I'm going to, awesome. But, but sometimes we get so stuck on the, the sheep and the shepherds and all those pieces. We like miss the whole point of what's going on. Even in our religiosity, even in our spirituality. We got a, a teenage mom who, after an angel talks to her, shows up pregnant. And he, her and her husband, who really wants to divorce her, goes down, finds a cave basically, and has a child in a... This is... Way more is going on here, right? This is the Lord of the universe. The Son of God. God in human flesh coming down into a, a feeding trough. And if you just take the story, you miss what's going on. There's so much more going on. This is a chosen woman by God's grace bringing our Lord and King into a world that He created. Looking forward to the time when He would die for that same creation, but not before He spit upon with spit He created and beaten with whips from animals He created. Right? More going on here. And so, if nothing else, Jesus is trying to say, like, will you guys look beyond bread for a second? Because if you don't look beyond bread, if you don't look behind, beyond the tangible, you will fall. You will die. They fail to see that Jesus is just not talking about bread. He says, really, just as Jesus is feeding something spiritual through His bread, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are feeding something spiritual through theirs. That there's something bad in their bread. And because everyone has to eat, spiritually speaking, well, of course everyone has to eat. No, no, no. Okay, go to the next step now. Everyone, you're going to feast on something. You are right now feasting on something, and some of it even looks biblical. Jesus says, be careful what's in the bread. Because it looks good and sounds good, but it may not actually be good for you. 
In the Old Testament, it was basically um, consistently leaven was used to represent sin and false truth and evil. And as you get into the New Testament, Jesus uses leaven to, as we see here, identify what is the false teaching or the bad teaching of the Pharisees. And he doesn't warn his disciples about bread. He warns them about the leaven that is in the bread. And that's really important. Because we're really horrible at evaluating the goodness and badness of bread by what we see. If you look at a loaf of bread, guess what? You can't tell if it's gluten-free unless it has a big label on it, which is now required by law, right? You can't, you can't tell. It's like looking, putting two apples up in front and one's totally rotten, but you never know until you crack it open. So a lot of us eat bread that's really bad for you, but it looks biblical. It looks godly. And unfortunately, it's as far as we go. Like, if it looks good, I'll eat it. If it tastes good, I'll eat it. If it smells good, I'll eat it. But what if what looks good and tastes good and smells good has something inside that's slowly killing you? Or at least making your stomach feel like a balloon of twisted glass. Right? So he warns them about two specific kinds. Two specific kinds of False teaching that imitates truth, right? Kind of like Wonder Bread imitates real bread, right? I know some of you love Wonder Bread, but like, it pretty much just falls apart when you try to even touch it. Like real bread, right? The imitation. It's the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of the Sadducees. And it's really important. Like, there's very different teachings here, but they both will, both these guys love the Bible. That's important. Both these guys were religious in their own ways. Eleven of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, you got to understand, they were basically kind of middle-class business guys. And they were actually, therefore, because they were kind of normal, common guys, they were very popular with the common man. That's why they um, had so much influence, because the common guy could kind of relate to them. Even though they devoted themselves to study, and they, and they were basically end up being Bible studs in terms of what they knew, they were from the common people. And even though they were a minority in what is the Sanhedrin, which was kind of a legal council, they had um, a minority position of priests and a, and, and a minority just kind of um, presence, but most of the decision-making, they influenced greatly because they had the people behind them. But the Pharisees really were the conservative guys that kind of separated from culture. They stepped away from culture and even though they were doctrinally sound in, in many ways, they became, as we've already seen, more devoted to their own teachings, and their own traditions. And the traditions that they had kind of created based off of the Bible began to be more authoritative even than the Bible. And so they became uh, what was super spiritual men full of rules and rituals. And even though they... They look like they love God. They wrongly emphasize something they had to do to God or for God to get His love. So Pharisees, as we already have seen, were the hypocritical. In other words, they were pretenders. They pretended they were clean. They pretended they were moral in many ways. And they were incredibly 
hypercritical, hypercritical fundamentalists, right? Every time you see him with Jesus, you're like, dude, what are you doing? Sabbath, purity laws, all these things, you can't heal. They're super critical, always looking outside at what other people are doing. And they became proud of what? Their moral superiority, their moral greatness. They were good. And they were better than any other sinner. But they looked religious. They sounded biblical. They had all the trappings of the rituals. If you like, they look like, man, those guys are the righteous guys. They got it together. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. And then you have the leaven of the Sadducees, which is a little bit different. They were basically the aristocrats. They, they tended to be wealthy. They tended to have very powerful positions in the Sanhedrin, including the chief of priests and usually the high priests. And they held a majority of the 70 seats of that council, and so they were legally influential, even though the Pharisees were really practically more influential. And what these guys did is they worked very hard to keep the peace with Rome. And so, even though they loved the Bible, they would support most of the decisions by Rome, and they, consumed, they seemed a little more concerned with politics than they were religion. Basically, these were the liberal guys, the liberal religious guys who immersed themselves into the culture and became part of it. And they became so accommodating that they began to compromise the truth and maybe redefine what actually sin was. So if the Pharisees were the super spiritual ritualistic dudes, the Sadducees were the super secular men of power and politics. Both had the Bible. And though religious, the Sadducees denied many key teachings that the Pharisees upheld, namely resurrection of the dead, that God was involved in daily life, that there was actually a spiritual world, namely the existence of angels and demons. They denied that. They even denied that there was ever eternal punishment or like a hell. Now, does that sound familiar? See, today's world... Christian world has both these groups still heavy at work. You have the Pharisees who basically are not preaching the Gospel. They have abandoned the Gospel and they have put everything into their own work and their own righteousness and their own goodness. And they do good things and they hold the line! And then you have the Sadducees who also love the Bible. Talk about church. But have abandoned the Gospel and instead love the world. These are the guys today we'd recognize as the open, affirming, doctrine-denying universalists. Those are the Sadducees. So one group is proud of their moral goodness and their moral greatness, and the other group is proud of their social greatness. But they both used the Bible and they both offered up bread. They both offered up a bread that looked good, some even tasted good, and yet it only had death to offer. One loved the Bible maybe too much, and one didn't love it enough. And ironically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. But somehow, they're able to come together in unity against Jesus. Because both of them 
whether it be the super fundamentalists or the super accommodationists, both of them hate the gospel of grace. Both of them hate Jesus. Both of them might even talk about Jesus, might even recognize Jesus at some level, but they certainly will not worship Him. And they find unity in disdain for Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ, not another Jesus that has been made up or perverted. And so these guys, the Gospel of grace, the message of Jesus Christ, threatens their power, their prosperity, and their popularity. And all these movements want something, as I said, more than Jesus. And none of these movements find complete satisfaction in the Gospel. The sinless life, the crucifixion and death and atonement of Jesus and His resurrection. Like if you push on some of these groups, whether it be liberal or conservative, say, what does your faith come down to? Jesus will not be the thing they get to. It will be social concern. It will be moral goodness. It will be something other than Jesus. doesn't mean Jesus will never be mentioned. We say, what does it really come down to? As we'll see next week, where Jesus says it comes down to is, who is Jesus? That's what it's supposed to come down to. That's the last thing it comes down to with either of these groups. They don't want anything to do with Jesus, really. At least not the Jesus of the Bible. Bad leaven basically produces bad Christianity. But it does produce a form of Christianity which is terrifying. And some of you here have basically mistaken what has been offered to you as Christianity and bread, and it's really not. It's not the Gospel. It's something else entirely. It's something that if you were open your Bible, you would see was unbiblical. It's something if you watch long enough and you can already sense it is unhealthy. And it's something, really plainly speaking, that is unable to save. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul warned, a little leaven, just a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump. It only takes a little bit a little bit of false gospel. A little bit of false gospel where you are just a little off and everything goes poorly. It's like putting a drop of poison in a cup of water. It's all poisoned. It doesn't take much for us to get off the gospel. Leaven also works very slow, but it works and does produce bread. And the danger of bad leaven is it will give rise to something in you. In other words, a Christian can grow with bad leaven. And so can churches. Pastors can be successful by offering bad leaven. There are many ministries right now that have risen to great heights and they do not have the gospel. But they're offering bread that can temporarily keep you alive, kind of like a mud puddle can. Bad bad bread will keep you alive, but it will never satisfy, and it will always kill you in the end. And bad leaven produces, I believe, bad bread that is feasted upon and fed to others, and it begins to produce people who are like either the Pharisees or the Sadducees. What does that mean? Here's all you'll know. That's what bad leaven produces. And you just see it by the Pharisees. Like, what, is, what were they like? And you can evaluate. This is not a time to evaluate... Um, other people, though you certainly should evaluate ministries as you begin to partner or, or, or friends of yours are part of, are part of them. 
But leaven gives rise to something. And this is what bad leaven gives rise to. If you just take it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they get puffed up with criticism. Criticizing all other ministries, criticizing all other people. If it's the Pharisees, they tell you you're not good enough. You're not following these rituals. You're not doing these things. If it's a Sadducee, they say you don't love the world enough. You're not engaged with the world enough. You're not serving enough. You're not. You're, the beliefs you're holding are holding back people who could be coming into your church. You need to be more open and affirming. They become critical. Secondly, they get puffed up or rise, right? What rises up with them? Fear of men's approval. I'm so fearful of what other people think of me. And so I'll do the very things they criticize me of so that they will be happy with me. Fear. Rejection. It produces people that come into church and are fake as fake can be. Hypocrites. Pretending to have it all together. Where people say, how you doing? Instead of saying, I'm doing really crappy. You go, you know what? The Lord is good. He is with me. Like, come on. And it might be true in the moment, but if you say that every time, start to disbelieve that. Maybe you're faking it a little bit. Third, you get puffed up with a yearning for what? Earthly power. Greatness. And the funny thing is, or the sad thing is, that happened to Jesus' disciples, right? As Jesus is out serving and, and, and blessing and taking care of the people that He like created, He's the King, they should be serving Him, and He's serving them. What are the disciples talking about? Hey Jesus, when we're in heaven, maybe I could be on your right-hand side, be the great guy, you know? Like there's, and what does He say? You want to be great, you'll serve. Do you want to know false leaven? Like what does it do? It produces you a desire to be great, not to serve. You're always wondering, what are people going to do for me, or how can I use people to get there? What does bad leaven do? It gives you a craving for, a craving for material prosperity. I'm going to love Jesus because He's going to love me and bless me. I'm going to give to Jesus and sow a seed because He is going to sow it back to me tenfold. There's an evil prosperity gospel that is out there that is duping people into believing that's actually real bread and it's not. But that's what it does. It gives rise to material prosperity. I'm here to be happy. And happy means prosperity. And the gospel says, no, you're actually here to be holy. And that might mean suffering, but it will mean glory. Very different. Last couple. Talk about the bad effects of bad leaven. You get puffed up with a concern for the external, for ritual, just like the Pharisees did. You don't often ask questions, why is your heart doing that? You always ask questions like, oh, Facebook's evil, right? As opposed to like, why is it evil for you to be on Facebook? Why do you struggle with depression by looking at Facebook? Why is it, like we don't talk heart questions, we always talk about externals. Puffed up with pride, rising up pride in one's self-righteousness, I'm really good or I'm really bad. If you, as a Christian, if your life is governed by good days and bad days, I was really good today, thank you Jesus, I was really bad today, I'm sorry Jesus, Like, that's a really despairing, prideful place to be. 
That's not the Gospel. The Gospel says, I'll quote Jerry Bridges, your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of it. That's the Gospel. Pure grace. If I fall, grace. If I succeed, grace. That ain't you. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself up for me. That's Jesus coming through you. The only reason you're not a bad husband, bad mom, bad dad, bad father, whatever, is Jesus. The only reason you succeed at work is Jesus. I know, but I have a really awesome brain. Who gave you that awesome brain? It's all Jesus. But when you are being fed something like, dude, you know what? You need to think better of yourself. Your esteem's too low. Be careful of that. That's not purely evil, but really what self-esteem is is pride in oneself. And when that becomes a solution to all your problems, you've got a problem. Last thing, puffed up, this is it. What does bad leaven do? It gives rise to suspicion of grace. You preach grace. I mean, people are going to just, they're just going to go off the deep end. If you preach that they don't have to do anything, they're going to go off the deep end. Well, let's be clear. They're already off the deep end now. And if you preach grace, true grace transforms from the inside out. So why would I ask someone to behave before they can believe? Because that's not possible. I want them to believe. Not just reform their behavior, but be transformed and let their behavior follow. Only grace can do that. Well, what happens is you get suspicious of grace, especially the Pharisees. They've got to do these things as opposed to just believing these things. You've got to do these things for Jesus or just believing these things about Jesus and believing that that will actually transform. The solution to all of this, as we conclude, is not to find the best bread with the best leaven. And we've got to be careful how we apply this text because we can actually become guilty of the very thing Jesus is warning us about, right? So we, we can't be like the Pharisees. What would the Pharisees say? Well, just don't eat bread. And we don't want to be like the Sadducees because what would the Sadducees say? Well, it doesn't matter what you eat. Eat whatever. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that we must eat bread but a particular kind. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. No leaven? Gluten-free? Uh-uh, getting it? Alright. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Feasting on, or to feast on the unleavened bread which is Christ. Jesus is called unleavened bread, right? Bread without leaven. If we're talking biblically, we're talking about bread without sin. So how do we know if we're eating bad leaven? How do we know if the teaching we receive from the pulpit or from popular culture? Because you get teaching through all kinds of means. How do we know whether it's we're actually eating unleavened bread? It leads to Jesus and it keeps you flat. It leads to Jesus and it keeps you flat. Unleavened bread 
is Jesus in us. And when Jesus comes in us, guess what it gives rise to? Humility. Jesus in us gives rise to a love for God. Jesus in us gives rise to gratitude toward God. Jesus in us gives a rise to a desire to serve others. It gives rise to a compassion toward others. It gives rise to a hope beyond this world. Jesus in us gives rise to a true satisfaction that is not found in this world or anything in it. We are to feast on the unleavened bread of the Gospel. And it's only when we see our sinless King and how flat He became, how humble He became, beginning with the manger and ending with the cross where He comes down and though He should be served and honored and worshipped, He serves that we might be glorified. And it's only when you see how He humbled Himself to die for our sin will we ever be humble enough or flat enough to declare our need for Him. Never forget, especially those who do not know Jesus right now, that Jesus doesn't save the good and the moral and the clean and the powerful. He only saves those who are willing to admit that they're bad and weak and broken. And upon that, that confession, you can begin to feast on the bread of life. I'll close with a passage out of John 6. And then we'll take communion where we'll feast on, it's not really unleavened bread, but it's kind of flat, right? We'll feast on the unleavened bread that Jesus delivered to his disciples on the night he'd be betrayed. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Eat this bread that you might live. Eat this bread and be reminded that my body was broken for you so yours didn't have to be. That my blood was shed for you so yours didn't have to be. And that his body and his his body and his blood is of eternal weight. Therefore, any sin you come before him and bring to him, it's forgiven, it's covered. And we come every Sunday to remind ourselves not that I need to be forgiven again, just I am forgiven. John six, Jesus speaking. Shortly after feeding the five thousand, I believe, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life." Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, made myself flat, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you want to truly rise with Jesus on the last day? Get yourself flat. Humble before the Lord and receive forgiveness that He gives you on the cross. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are awed by You. That You would send Your Son to die for rebellious, broken creation. That You would choose to love us. 
that knowing how ugly and dirty we are, Lord, You would come. And Jesus, You would get lower than low. You would serve the creation that should serve You. That You would die for the creation that deserved death. Holy Father, would You humble us for we like to eat bread that gives rise to ourselves. Forgive us for we like to eat bread that, that puffs us up and makes us feel superior to others. Forgive us because we like to eat bread that gives us rise to happiness in this world, ignoring all the promises You have for the world to come. We pray, Father, that we'll be reminded that during this Christmas season especially, there's much more going on. That You are still at work. That You are still saving. That You are still moving. You are still returning. May You be glorified in our worship this morning. May You help us to sing and to give with all that we have because of how much You've given to us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.